0: Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation.
1: I was floored by the joy that the experience generated The laughter, the lights, the music, all of it just transported me in a way that got my attention seriously for the first time in my life.
0: I was so excited to discover Jerry zacks I suppose I should have known who he was, but when I did, I knew I had found the perfect sitcast guest. Smart, yes. Funny, yes, working in a field I've always wanted to know more about. Yes, great stories, yes, and powerful backstory. Jerry zacks is a four-time Tony Award-winning Broadway producer, famous for plays like Guys and Dolls and Hello Dolly and a bunch of others. He's now working on the theater version of that great movie you probably remember, Mrs. Doubtfire, that starred the amazing, and unfortunately now gone, Robin Williams. Mrs. Doubtfire on Broadway, it's gonna be pretty amazing. And stay tuned, because I hear it's slated to hit the stage in New York City in spring of 2020. So how does someone find a career that's so fully engrossing, engaging, and energizing? The story is this. Jerry Zachs took a girl out on a date to see a play. The first play he ever saw, and his life was changed forever. Not from the girl he went out with that night, but from what he saw on the stage. And just like that, he goes from the man who was going to be a doctor to a guy who wants to make plays. Every parent can imagine listening to that and how that conversation would have gone when Jerry went home to his parents to tell them, hey, you know, uh, I don't think I'm going to become a doctor. I, I want to go into showbiz. You know, in our conversation, I asked Jerry whether his parents ever saw his great success and you know it was personal because the reason i asked them is because i wish my own parents were here to experience what i've been doing and not that i've been you know such a great success it's not really the point but yeah i've done something i've created something and when my parents died i was still early on my own path maybe it's something we all wish for maybe some people are incredibly lucky to have their parents with them in the prime of their career and their family and their life i mean if that's you i say you are very fortunate And if that's you right now, call your mother or your father or your grandparents or your aunt or your uncle and tell them how much you feel blessed to have them in your lives. You know, my conversation with Jerry Zachs evoked all of that in me and more. And for that, I'm very grateful to Jerry for sitting down in New York City to talk with me. Come join us on the SITCAST. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am here with Jerry Zachs today. Hi, Jerry. Hello, Sid. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh you know, Dartmouth alum, a multi-Tony Award winner, doing all kinds of fascinating, continuing to do all kinds of fascinating things. And I have hundreds of questions, and I'm going to... Sp- pack them all into one hour so we might leave a few on the side. What got you into the theater in the first place? How did this become your life's passion?
1: Oh very simply I was at Dartmouth I got there when I was 16 years old I didn't know what I was going to do. If anyone asked I said I was going to be a doctor because it seemed it sounded good and it felt good to say I was going to be a doctor and then sophomore year which would be the winter carnival of I think 1965 I took a blind date to see Wonderful Town at Hopkins Center. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd ever seen a musical before. And if I tell you my life changed completely, it's not an exaggeration. Really? Yeah. I was floored by the joy that the experience generated, the laughter, the lights, the music, all of it just transported me Uh in a way that got my attention seriously for the first time in my life. And as a result, I implored the director of the production to let me be in it. It was done during Winter Carnival. Then it was done again during Reunions, and they had to recast some of the parts. Okay. So I decided I'm going to do this, and I did. Warner Bentley was the director, and there's yes, a, a Bentley Theater today, is, as a matter of I fact, named after him, and he was. Uh, Yes, he and Professor Henry Williams and uh, Rod Alexander, uh, they're all pillars of the Dartmouth Theatre community. In any event, I performed for the first time in my life. And that was uh, sophomore year. Then I came back for junior year. I jettisoned my pre-med courses. And yeah, it was a big deal at home. I can (laughs) imagine what the parents were saying about that one. Well, you know, they were very disappointed. You know, my folks, my mother survived Auschwitz. My father changed his identity and ran from the Nazis successfully, obviously. I was born in Stuttgart after the war. And the last thing they had any interest in was the theater or mm. any uh, anything cultural, if you will. None, yeah, none. Not at all. So, you know, but yeah. Um, yeah, so I started auditioning for parts for the Dartmouth Players and began getting parts at, with the Dartmouth Players. And suddenly I began to enjoy myself very much. And it gave me a little bit of identity that was missing. So that's how it began. So right.
0: You know? and so it's interesting, gave you a little bit of identity we're missing. So you maybe didn't exactly know, but you kind of know something is that there's more, you're not sure what direction you're going. That That's what you're
1: getting at, right? That's exactly what I'm getting at. You know, I got reasonably good grades. I was reasonably Normal, if you will, whatever that means. But I didn't have a passion. I didn't have something that I felt I needed to do, Mm -hmm. that I wanted to do. And uh, I fell in love with acting, you know, at, at Dartmouth. And when crunch time came at the end of junior year... When you had to declare what you wanted to do, I took the law boards. I was putting off or (laughs) pushing away the idea of continuing to work in the theater because it was so not appropriate (laughs) to my family. Right. So you know, my father was a kosher butcher in Patterson, New Jersey. My mom took care of my father. Simple people. So, what was the conversation like when you was like? I went to grad school at Smith and then MFA program in acting. When I got there in September of 67, I had to take dance classes with uh, co-educational dance classes. I was about 40 pounds, heavier. Mm. Between September and Thanksgiving, I lost 40 pounds, wow. began dancing, came home, and told my parents that, you know, this was, I was serious this about this. It. Yeah, and they, they thought I was sick, uh, literally cause ill. Because you had though. lost so much weight. Well, I hadn't you? lost weight. And then you had this crazy idea. That's right. But I was so happy. And it's again, I remember getting condolences or symp- sympathetic looks at bar mitzvahs and weddings. And um, I didn't understand why people were feeling sorry for me because I was so happy doing what I was doing. So, yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with that? I mean, you just keep going. You just I mean, keep going. Yeah. You know, I was sorry to disappoint them, uh, obviously, my parents. And, uh, but it was impossible to measure what a great time I was having. Not just fun, I was working very hard yeah. on conditioning myself and equipping myself to come to New York to pursue a career as an actor. Right.
0: My, I mean, my experience with parents, not all are the same by any means, but yeah. one or both occasionally do have some intuition about this and they see it and they, they love you more than anything else. That's right. So it's not the path they want, but they had to have seen it
1: they did they knew something was <laughs> they knew something was amiss because I used to come home when I was in high school with 45s records you know the old 45s sure, sure. I would go down into our basement and put them on the record player and I would sing to them over and over <laughs> to myself in the mirror we had a little bar downstairs mm-hmm. and but it was a secret private passion of course I'm sure they heard me and thought I was Ms. Sugar, mm-hmm. if you will but I loved doing it I just didn't so they must have had an inkling, but they knew how happy it made me. And uh, they were distressed when I told them I wanted to go to Dartmouth, you know, they were distressed. My father insisted that I write a letter to the rabbi. They They didn't even have a rabbi in residence at that time. It was a Sort of a circuit rabbi who would mm-hmm. go to the various campuses to assure us that there was no anti-Semitism. You know, that was that's that's an father's. interesting assurance that cannot be given. Of course not. Of course not. Anywhere. Yeah. No. No. And. You know, it's impossible to overstate what an awakening going to Dartmouth was. I had never spent a night away from my parents mm. until I went to Dartmouth. But also, you said 16. 16. Well, yeah. I got that sounds my, early. It is, well, I had skipped a couple of grades, and I got my acceptance letter in the spring of 63. Mm. And so I flew up to take a look at the campus, and I stayed, I think, at the inn overnight, and that was... It was love at first sight. And I know it sounds like such a cliche, but it was. Mm. I saw the green and the Dartmouth Row and it was the most beautiful thing I'd seen in my life. So I arrived on campus. I was just on the verge of turning 17. Right.
0: Yeah. Now, from having a passion like that, yeah, and this, this kind of overwhelming purpose in life, which is such a gift, really, when well, somebody has that at a young age, many people never understand that are always searching for it. Yeah. How does that translate
1: into actually getting a career going? It's Well, you come to New York, at least I did. You come I, to New York. come to New York, you know. One of the things that I had going in my favor was ferocious determination and relentless drive to get myself noticed. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to have to ask my parents for help. Mm-hmm. So I got a very cheap apartment. We split with two other guys from Dartmouth who were coming to the city. And I got a copy of Backstage magazine, which was, and still is, the trade magazine that listed auditions. Uh And I went to as many of those auditions as I could with my material. I got the first one I went on. You got the first one? First one. First one I auditioned for an equity. I had my equity card, which was, uh, you know, I had a leg up on a lot of other young people because I had received my equity card at Dartmouth when the Dartmouth Summer Repertory Company Mm -hmm. was an equity company, a union company. So I had my equity card. I went in and auditioned for what was called? They're now Theater Works USA. They did children's theater, mm. and I auditioned for a Young Tom Edison, and I got it. And you know, I can't, you know, it was uh, describe. It, I know you well, can't describe. It was. I'll tell you exactly what happened. I was. Th- I hadn't even moved into the city. I got a phone call from the producers. At I was staying with my at my mother's home mm-hmm. along with one of my friends. We were waiting to move into an apartment, and I got off the phone, and he said, "Did you get a call back?" And I said, "No." I got it. I got it.
0: You got it. I got it. Incredible.
1: And it was really, I heard trumpets going. On. <laughs> <laughs> Sid, it was, my mo- I just went on. I got it. I got it. And my mother said, That's nice. That's <laughs> nice. I mean, she didn't know what it meant. Yeah. But it was the beginning. Yeah. And I, fa- I have found that you get an opportunity, you do well, you get more opportunities. Right. And that's what happened with Theater Works USA.
0: So what happens? You have that you have that gig, it goes on for a while. Yeah,
1: and then and then the, and, the, event. and then and then you go on unemployment for a couple of weeks, and then maybe and then they tell you we're doing another show. It's called Young Ben Franklin. It's a new one. We want you to do it. And I say, Great. And so I did children's theater for mm-hmm. two or three years with this organization, mm-hmm. Equity Job, a union job. And I was simultaneously taking acting classes with a man by the name of Kurt Dempster, who had been a guest artist at Smith College Mm -hmm. while I was there. And one day during acting class, he said, I'm building a theater on 52nd Street. The city's given us permission and a property. So we all trucked over to West 52nd Street and we scraped and we painted and we built a theater. And now we had a home base. It was the Ensemble Studio Theater, which currently still exists Mm. and does great work for new, new writers, young people, you know, opportunities to work out.
0: Yeah, right.
1: And so you did that. And are there agents that go around and watch everyone? That's what you see in the movie. So I don't really know how it works. I'll tell you exactly. I didn't have an agent. I just had a couple of jobs. And then the producers of, and and because I didn't have an agent, I couldn't get an audition for Grease. I wanted to be in Greece, the musical You're right right nineteen seventy one or two something like that's that that's when it was coming out the first time first time that's right and i I had to go to a general call where you just seen and said hello and goodbye and mm-hmm. there was nothing in my presentation that made anybody want me to audition for them, mm-hmm. and I was angry because I knew I could do this music and so, in the course of the next year, I did another show that was produced by the same people who had produced the children's theater that I had done, except this was for grownups. This was a musical of the Rothschilds. Mm -hmm. And I played a a lead role opposite Theodore Bikel. And an agent came to see it. And he said, do you have representation? I said, no. (laughs) He said, I'll be your agent. I said, great. And because I had an agent, when auditions came around for the first national tour of Greece, Mm -hmm. this is where the story comes full circle, Mm -hmm. he got me an appointment. Mm -hmm. And I prepared within an inch of my, I mean, I work very hard. And I think, you know, there's, you know, like I said, relentlessly work. So I prepared my audition. I went in there on the stage of the Royale Theater. This was in 1973, I think. And I sang my heart out <laughs> and I read and the director gave me an adjustment. Try this a little more ferociously. Can you do you know Hound Dog? Can you sing Hound Dog? I said, hit it. And the piano player went into Hound Dog and I did my best. You ain't nothing but, you know, but life and death, Sid. Yeah. It was life and death. I, you know, I'm not exaggerating. And as I walked off stage, the, they said, um, the director said, see you again. And the writer stood up and said, Yeah, real soon. Wow. And again, I walked out onto the street and it was as if You were floating on that... the clouds as you were walking. That's exactly right. right. I can remember to this day, I'm 73, every great audition I ever had as an actor because they were so monumental and they involved taking chances. Taking a chance. Say some more about that. That Well, yeah. Uh, You've got so many people who are auditioning. And they are a lot of talented people. Immensely. Immensely. That's right. So you have to distinguish yourself. Mm -hmm. And in the course of trying to distinguish yourself, you can make a fool of yourself Mm -hmm. or you can do something that gets their attention. Mm -hmm. For example, I auditioned for Neil Simon, Manny Eisenberg, and Bobby Moore to be an understudy in their production of Little Me. And one of the parts that I was having to cover was a comic Nazi, hmm? mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a la Mel Brooks kind of Nazi, yes, you know, the producers. Yes, indeed. And I remember to this day, I started out by singing, smile, though your heart is aching, mm-hmm. smile, even though it's breaking. Then there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by if you and I turned him into a full blown Crazy German. Oh. And the laughter began. And I heard Neil Simon and Manny Eisenberg laughing out loud. <laughs> and the further I went, until I got to the point where I screamed, smile, <laughs> what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile. And I finished it the way I started it. If you'll just smile. So I basically presented them a three-act play mm. with one song, taking a big chance, and it worked. So you... We're not asked to do that. You asked to sing that song. I was asked to sing
0: anything I wanted, right. And you're doing it in that way. That's right. And that wasn't part of the show notes, in
1: fact. No, 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 no. The way that Neil Simon imagined it. No, 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 no. But he knew, they knew that one of the parts that I was auditioning for was uh, a German officer. Mm -hmm. a German military person. And so in preparing, I I thought, it's just the director part of me that I had not even known was existed yeah, yeah, yeah. saw the, the scene if i start out sort of all american sweet, and and turn into a crazed insistent german character mm. and then turn back into the simple guy i was when i started the song mm-hmm. it would work now i didn't know until literally the second before i was gonna sing that i would do it well because you run the risk of making a fool of yourself mm. and so but i did and of course i got the job you know which I had to turn down because I was doing a different Broadway show at the time. After
0: like, all that, you had to turn
1: it down. Yeah, but it was fine because you were noticed. Yeah. They knew who you were. They, knew they saw what was. you did. That's right. Eventually, years later, I would direct two of Neil Simon's plays, hmm. you know. So, it was the beginning of something. I loved the competition. I loved believing that I could do this as well if not better than anyone else. Yeah. I didn't have a great voice, but I had a pretty good imagination. And I was, as frightened as I was of living in general, (laughs) when when I got up on stage, it was... uh, So that's an example of taking a chance, you know, um, working hard, coming up with an original idea, and then executing it. Right. Yeah. And what I
0: find really interesting about that is I think about, you use the word competition. There's all kinds of ways to compete in business and anything. Right. And you said that you didn't have the best voice. You had a good voice, but there were better. Much better. Right. And so you had to find something else. That's right. And that came from a directorial eye and guts yes. to do this. Yes. And creativity to come up with it in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a powerful, there are two powerful lessons. And that's definitely one. You can't always win on on every dimension that people are paying attention to. Because not everyone is going to
1: be the best at everything. Right. But you can break the rules. You can change the rules. That's right. That's right. right. Yes, you, you really can. I knew that I was breaking a rule there by not seeing a st- A familiar song, or I was singing a familiar song. Yeah,
0: but doing it in a way that was definitely unexpected.
1: And then when I was done, I would hang in the wings, and I would listen to the next person, and I would use that. I go, okay, I'm good, I'm good. You know, I. You can call yourself an actor, Mm. but unless you're actually acting, yes, you feel less than whole. You know, you feel less than what you're saying you are, Mm. and so it was really important for me to act as often. As I possibly could. And I didn't, you know, whether it was a soap opera or commercials. You did all that. I did all that. Off-Broadway, on-Broadway, a bit in a film. I was an actor. And one of the things I'm proudest of was that in the 10 years that I was an actor, without any support from my folks, you know, I didn't want any money from Mm -hmm. them. I never had to take another job a day job, if you will. I've always been pretty proud of that.
0: Sure. Yeah, it's also this old story about the overnight sensation.
1: Oh, it's no such thing.
0: Right. It's just working and working. And I think it's really interesting that what you just said, take any job, always be working, because each time you're getting better, you're pushing yourself. They're not all going to be home runs, no. but each one is a learning experience. And you're being seen by more people. And you're networking. You're yeah. being seen. You That's know, right. it reminds me of a, another, I, had, I did a, a podcast episode uh, a while back with a guy named Jonathan Wolf, mm-hmm. uh, who He wrote the music for Seinfeld oh, um, and Will and & Grace and 25 other yeah. uh, primetime shows. Yeah. And when he moved to LA at the age of 17 yeah. from Louisville, Kentucky, he worked day and night. It didn't matter what the job was, anything related to music, a- engineering, he was a composer every yeah. And he said, that was what I had to do. Yeah. And he did it for a long time. And after a while, you start to be able to call your shots. Everybody knows you. That's Sherry right. Seinfeld calls him up and says, you know, I heard you're good. Can you talk?
1: Let's talk. It's exactly the way it works, you know, but you've got to, if you don't love it, if you don't love doing it, mm-hmm. if you don't need to do it, mm-hmm. it's going to be tough to sustain that. you yeah. know. And, you know, there were discouraging things, you know, parts I didn't get. I mean, they're always, but I just, refused to be told no <laughs> right
0: and you know, parts you didn't get of course there there would have been how could there not be well yeah and so how'd you react to that i mean it sounds like you just got back up off the floor and kept I, going
1: really i tried not to dwell on the auditions that i didn't get or didn't nail mm-hmm. you know i learned a lot of lessons auditioning as an actor you know that served me very well as a director yes i can remember a couple of times in auditions being embarrassed i forgot the words of a song right in the middle of a song. And I can remember a casting director making me feel like crap Mm -hmm. because I had done that and was reflecting badly on that person, which is why to this day, when I'm auditioning actors, if they go up on the lines, that is to say, forget the words, Mm -hmm. I leap to my feet to reassure them that I I don't care, Mm -hmm. that it's okay. And let's just do it again. Isn't that interesting? Well, yeah, because I think embarrassing, you know, The Talmud goes on about how bad it is to embarrass someone, but I I experienced embarrassment several times Mm -hmm. in my career and vowed not to subject actors to that as I became a director. Yeah,
0: it's very interesting about learning. The famous football coach Bill uh, Walsh has now passed away, San Francisco 49 He was bypassed to be head coach, I think it was in Cleveland or Cincinnati, and he vowed never to do that to any of his assistant coaches when the time came and he wasn't moving to the side he actually helped them get jobs as head coaches in competing teams if you could imagine that, that and he became a legend as a result yeah we're going to move to the next phase and of course it wasn't so smooth from one to the other but you've spent uh, probably the bulk of your career as a broadway director and won uh, several tony awards for that job and continue to do that and so the question is how do you shift from acting to directing how does that happen <laughs> reluctantly
1: um, really yeah I- I love being an actor, and I, as I, I love being an actor. I love going out for auditions. I love being part. Of a company of actors, uh, the team, the camaraderie—it's yes, it's impossible to describe. It, it's so rewarding and so fulfilling. You,
0: you don't—you don't get that as a
1: director because you're no, the it's boss different. of those people you in know? a sense. <laughs> but you're not doing it. Yeah. You know, when you're acting and the lights go down, mm-hmm. the director has nothing to say anymore. Right. Right. It's right. up to you. No, I was uh, an—I was a member of the Ensemble Studio Theater, and I acted there. And uh, one day, out of nowhere. Um, A fellow member said, I've read a play. I want to play this part. And you want to direct it? We'll just do a workshop. Mm. And I thought, well, okay, why not? And so began, it was a play called The Soft Touch by Neil Cuthbert. We did it unofficially. It was not an official production, Mm -hmm. but we did it for four performances. I staged it and I discovered that I loved orchestrating the life between two or more actors on stage. So what does a director do? The director does a lot of things. You know, In pre-production, you work with the designer to to come up with the right physical design for the set and the costumes and sound effects if there are sounds in it that are not orchestral. And you prepare and you go through the script with the writers if it's a new piece. Or if it's an old piece, you revisit earlier versions of that Mm. piece. When I did Hello, Dolly, the producer, Scott Rudin, and I sat down and went through all the iterations of that script leading up to the ultimate broadway version just to see if we could cherry pick things Mm. that had been discarded and so there's but then you get into rehearsal and now the work begins with the actors man i stage the scenes and i guide the actors no you're getting too angry too soon and don't do anything there when he says this to you make me imagine what's going on in your head take a beat The great actors have that. It's called timing, (laughs) knowing when to speak, knowing when not to speak, Mm. you know, and the power of allowing an audience to figure out what you're imagining, you know. Right. So I I started directing in uh, around 1979, 78, something like that. And it was this production uh, at the Ensemble Studio Theater. And it went very well. Mm -hmm. And not only that, I loved being in the back, watching what I had done Mm -hmm. with the actors And then soon after, I found a script there at the Ensemble Studio Theater called Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All For You by the great Christopher Durang. Mm. And it was a submission for their one-act play marathon. Mm. And in those days, the scripts were piled up in the lobby. And I took (laughs) one and I read it. And it made me laugh so hard. And I called up Christopher, the playwright. Mm -hmm. Here's how these connections are made. I had acted for him the year before in a production of a play of his called The History of the American Film. And I called him up and I said, Chris, I just read Sister Mary. I love it. And I'm just starting to direct now. Could you let me direct it for the Ensemble Studio Theater Marathon? And he got back to me the next day and he said, yes. And so I did it. Mm-hmm. And then and it went very well. And then two years later, Andre Bishop at Playwrights Horizons moved it off Broadway. where It ran for about four years, I think, three or four wow. years. And suddenly, said I was a director. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly you can get credibility as a director if something you do goes well. And I still refer to myself as an actor with an avocation of directing. But slowly I began to love the fact of what I did as a director, the control I had as a director, and the fact that it didn't matter what I looked like. <laughs> you know, as an actor, you're so... What you look like, mm-hmm. your appearance mm-hmm. so dictates what you're going to be mm-hmm. considered for or not. And I didn't like that limitation. So,
0: the, uh, so it sounds like uh, the, a director of a Broadway play. And I don't know whether that's the case for movies, maybe. But you're the CEO of the show.
1: That's correct. You're, there's nothing that is not important to you. The, that's correct. If the conductor conducts the orchestra, I conduct everything else, Yeah, including
0: the conductor. So are there other directors that have never acted?
1: Is that a pathway that you've seen? Uh, I think there are some that have never acted. Uh, You know, I think there are some directors who've come at it as uh, dramaturgs, uh, you know, script experts. And and, uh, I think some choreographers, wonderful choreographers have decided to branch out into directing as well as choreographing musicals, obviously. But I love doing plays and musicals. You know, they're they're no different. They're just more moving parts on a musical. But it's an immense number of jobs that you have to do to direct a Broadway show. When So Guys and Dolls. (laughs) Guys and Dolls, yes. 1990, 1990, 1992 or something like that. That was a thrilling one. But it was fraught. It was fraught because as soon as it, as it was announced that I was going to be directing Guys and Dolls, the number of people who would come up to me and say, it's my favorite musical. Oh, boy. That's right. The pressure's building. Well, you know, you that's code for, and don't screw don't it up. Don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. But I didn't, you know, because I was not a theater geek and a student of theater, mm-hmm. a lot of these shows like Guys and Dolls or Anything Goes or A Funny Thing Happened on the way to the Forum, mm. these came to me brand new. When I read them, it was as though they had been written yesterday. No, you had not experienced no, them earlier. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So that was a good thing, you know. Of course, then I went back and watched the movie of Guys and Dolls and whatever clips of the original I could find, but there wasn't much. Mainly it was coming up with the version that would do to an audience mm-hmm. what I wanted it to do. That was a difficult one because... I had miscast one of the principals. Yeah. And it was really hard. And I ultimately had to replace that person. And that's the worst part of directing. Yeah. That is having. It's an interesting people.
0: word you use, miscast. That's correct. That's putting the responsibility on you and 100%. not the performer. Oh, hundred percent. And you're and you're sticking with that. Oh yeah,
1: it's not a. Because you can imagine science. quite a uh, quite a different attribution to this, which is of course this person didn't didn't do. Didn't they do were great in the audition. I don't know what happened. Yeah. No, 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 no. I made a mistake. Yeah. You know, and I rationalized the mistake, and then discovered in the course of performances that the show was not working mm. and the show was not working for something that was clearly, it was clear to me, you know, and I knew I had to make a change and it was really loaded. But I managed in the, and from the moment the change was made, the show blossomed. Then I was able to give attention to all parts of the show that I had ignored mm. trying to make this one part of it work. So what happens with reviews? So the critics are reviewing when it
0: comes out, but then this sound, if it was a major character or a performer yeah. there might be other new reviews after that or because no. it sounds like it was different no i made the replacement before we
1: opened officially okay you're doing your the previews and maybe oh, on the yeah, road a I was, little no bit. no no we were in town doing previews right. and i had five weeks of previews let's say i think five maybe six and into the second week of previews i could feel it was not working. And then the most awful thing happened one night after a preview, which is just another word for a performance, Mm -hmm. you know, except we haven't officially opened Mm -hmm. during curtain calls. I heard for the only time in my life, a boo, boo in the curtain call. Well, I can't even begin to describe to you what that felt like. And I knew I had to do something. And so I made the decision to make the replacement, but I needed a week to get the understudy up on the part so I allowed the person who was doing the part to do it for a week while I rehearsed during the day at another location, mm. the person who was going in. And, you know, I communicated the decision on a Wednesday night and Thursday night, the new person went in because she had been rehearsing the prior week. Right. And it was, again, one of those, the skies parted and the <laughs> trumpets played and the, all of a sudden people were cheering the show because... It was a good production. You know, there was yeah. there was a lot of a lot of fantastic people and a brilliant design by Tony Walton. You know, and William Ivy Long and Paul Gallo did the lights. But it was it was a triumph that was nearly a disaster. Right. And yeah. so you're excited about Guys and Dolls. You're excited about everything you've done,
0: but Guys and Dolls is really yeah. It was. You know. It's in that short list of home runs. Yeah. Right at the top or near the top of that. And and a Tony Award winner for you. Yeah. What's uh, that like? Tony Awards. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, on TV you're watching, uh, well, now, or they do this with the Oscars and everything else, right? They show the close-up of the five finalists or whatever it is. And then they, they announce it. And one is like, everyone's so happy. And the other's generally speaking you see them cheering for the person but you can just imagine what that feels like
1: <laughs> yeah if you don't win it's very disappointing yeah. you know it, yeah. and on the other hand it really does mean something to have been nominated i know that's a cliche but it is you yeah. know you mm. you've been acknowledged for your work mm-hmm. and so i've let's see i've won four i've been nominated eight times and i've enjoyed the party every time you <laughs> know yeah it's very tense It's very, very tense. I mean, and then then you see things that no one else can see. I remember one year I was nominated for Best Direction of a Play, and the nominees are are seated one behind the other. They're stacked for television, you know, for camera purposes. And so I can remember as the presenter of the award was going on about what a director does, I looked over the shoulder of the director in front of me, and he was going over his acceptance speech. Oh, boy. And then I heard my name. And so it's like oh these boy. little, yeah. It, but I guess if you're not sure by that acceptance, you gotta be ready. You gotta be ready. You gotta be ready. And so I, oh I went up there, and I think the first thing I said was, Maybe now my mother will forget about medical school. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, yeah, my, it was. Your, um, your, your parents saw your success. They did. My father died in seventy-seven, so he saw me start to work as an actor. He saw me on Broadway in Greece. We mm. loved. He loved walking underneath the marquee, oh, telling imagine. people, "Of course, my boy." That's, you know, my that's yeah. him. Yeah, and my mother lived long enough to see all my directing. Uh, That's got to feel just so. It's the best. So good. The <laughs> it's, best. It's the best. It's on a par with having my daughters appreciate, you know, what I do. They're both living in New York and they're both big fans of. Uh, Are they yeah. in the theater business? No, you no, no. one of my daughters acted for a while and then she became one of the best instructors at Cycle actually. Wow. So she's a, a fitness uh, guru. Yeah. And, uh, they're and, celebrities uh, in their own right. They are. And my daughter, Hannah, teaches at the New York Autism Charter School. So she works with the most disadvantaged kids imaginable. And she's um, they're both great. So, <laughs> you know, it gives me special pleasure them witnessing all this good stuff that's been happening so
0: looking at uh Barry's shows uh plays that you directed musicals and otherwise yeah. was uh and you mentioned you know what happened and having to replace someone in a critical yeah. in a critical uh, time but what's it like to work with actors and actresses some of them no doubt were
1: very famous in their own right yeah yeah it's great as long as they want to work hard i think a lot of people who saw Say hello, Dolly, mm. or with Bette Midler. Have no idea how hard she worked how, mm. for a year before we started. rehearsal. Yes, getting into shape, getting you know, getting the songs down vocally, into shape, physically into shape. She's one of the hardest workers I've ever seen. Mm. Nathan Lane is the other one. You know, just. It's not accidental, is what I'm trying to say. Nathan Lane is Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane is Nathan Lane, but he is one of the hardest working people in the business. And I say this to young people, if you're dreaming about this, you've got to work. You've got to work. Nathan Lane comes into rehearsals on the first day with his lines learned. Mm. That's that's unusual. It is unusual. You know, he likes to know them so he can be free. Some people work differently. It doesn't really matter Mm. as long as you learn them, you know. But from my experience, I found that when people come in prepared and are tireless about trying to get it right, you know, yeah. I've rarely worked with anyone who's got a big name who wasn't also a tremendously hard worker. Yeah.
0: And you see that in many other fields. In sports, you see it for sure. You know, who's who's the first one in hockey? Who's the first one in, in practice? It was Wayne Gretzky, the greatest hockey player ever. In basketball, who was it? It was Michael Jordan. He was yeah. always he was yeah. always there. It's, yeah. you know, it's the same thing. They're
1: yeah. first in, last out. A friend it's not of mine, an accident. No, it's not. It's not. It's a drive that is, you know, it's hard to explain to someone. But if you love what you do and you take pride in it. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine told me he used to watch Michael Jordan play pickup games on the Warner Brothers lot. Really? Yeah, because he was shooting Space Jam or something. I maybe make, this may be a pop But it doesn't matter. And my friend went up to him and said, tell me, why is it you play so hard in these pickup games? You know, he played as though it was the NBA title. And he said, I don't like to rehearse mistakes. I don't like to practice mistakes. And that's... It's It's quest for excellence. That's right. With the understanding that uh, what is it? What did Browning say? A man's reach should exceed his grasp mm. or what's a heaven for? So, which means basically, you know, there is no such thing as perfection. Therefore, you have no excuse mm-hmm. to not go for it every time to get better. Those are the people I like to
0: work with. Yeah. And I'm also thinking for a Broadway show, it's almost every day and twi- uh, I guess Wednesday, typically Wednesday and Saturday, two times. That is really, each time it's a brand new performance. Right. The, most of the people in that audience, have not seen this before. I've right. not seen you do it. and right. No one has seen you do it on that day at that particular minute. Right. It's just a different animal than other types of entertainment, I think.
1: That's right. It's You have to be an athlete. You have to be in great shape mm. to do eight a week, which is what you were describing. Eight, week, eight yeah. a week, yeah. And a lot of people don't want to work that hard. Mm. And the pay doesn't compare to what you can make in television and film. But it's Broadway. Mm. It's... If you are a young kid dreaming of being a ball player, you dream of playing in Yankee Stadium, or fill in the blank. You know, right. if you're a young kid and you want to be in the theater, a lot of kids that I know dream of Broadway. So it's the ultimate, and um, I just think that the ones who work the hardest are the ones that generally make. Uh, you know, have right. an opportunity to right.
0: do it. So, you know, there was a time that you decided to uh, head West Yes, yes. Um, around 2002 to direct a couple of uh, sitcoms in LA, Frasier. And what was the other Everybody one? Everybody Loves Raymond. Everybody Loves Raymond. So let me start that part of your story, your career by asking, why did you leave? Cause you were, you were really yes. at the top of the
1: game on Broadway. I left because someone asked me to come out and do some episodic television. And I was suffering a dry spell in the theater. Things, I had done shows that hadn't been successful. I had said no to shows that had been very successful. Oh, Oh, yeah, it happens if you hang around long enough. Yes. And I was feeling like I've got to get out there and just try some of this, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And I had five years of doing uh, sitcoms. Everybody Loves Raymond was probably my favorite experience. I did 20 of those episodes Mm -hmm. with a wonderful man named Phil Rosenthal, who was one of the show's co-creators along with Ray Romano. And I got to work with wonderful actors on that show. But what I never learned was the craft of choreographing the cameras. And that's really one of the main jobs of a director of Mm. episodic. I never really got the hang or nor did I apply myself to learning that geometry. And, you know, I depended on the kindness of technical directors to help me get through that. And then I came to the realization And so I never really became... As good as I would like to have been. The way that you really mastered the art
0: of directing on Broadway. You didn't get there for the episodic TV. No. And it's because you didn't
1: know that was that important or... I didn't like it enough.
0: You didn't like it enough. Oh,
1: I didn't like it enough. The job of the director in the theater is very different than the job of director of an episode. Mm. The boss of an episode is really the showrunner. And the writers and the director's job is to make sure the actors are hit their marks and you get the shots for the episode. And um you're not the boss. You're not the boss. It's, a showrunner. it's the, bo- the, the showrunner that's the boss. The showrunner is the boss, that's right. And director has tremendous responsibility mm-hmm. and gets paid very well. But I just didn't love it the way I love walking into a theater mm-hmm. and being in control of a production. Yeah. Or planning a theater production for a year or two uh, before you even start rehearsals. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was a different animal. And uh, so I came back to New York after five years of doing that, determined to get back to directing for the stage. So, and, be- so before you tell that yeah. part of the story, yeah. some yeah. of the people you work with in
0: L.A., were they people you had worked with on the stage, or maybe at an earlier stage mm-hmm. of their career, or they were all new
1: for you? They were all new. A couple of them, the showrunner at Raymond, Phil, Rosenthal, who's got his own show on Netflix now, Somebody Feed Phil. Anyway, he's a foodie and he's great. Had been an avid theater goer and had seen many of my productions. Mm. And when he heard I was interested in TV, called me up and said, Come on out and do a couple of episodes. And so I was fortunate that way. And so what I would do is I would go out there for three weeks at a time to Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. stay in a hotel do three episodes and then come back home and then fly back out there and do a few more episodes. Mm. And all the time, wasn't doing theater or doing very little of it. And uh, I started to miss it. And I also started to become obsessed with the idea that people were forgetting that I was even on the list of eligible directors. Yeah. How's that? How's that?
0: Possible. They, they, it's like a depreciation rate. Yeah. <laughs> you depreciate 100 as soon as as soon as you leave out of sight, out of mind. I mean, it sounds it,
1: crazy. It feels. It felt that way to me, and I may have been exaggerating, it, but it felt that way to to me. And I think people have very short memories. Hmm. What they remember is your last successful show. Hmm. There were a couple of producers who were willing to have me direct plays. And so I did. And I worked on them and they went reasonably well, reasonably well. Mm-hmm. And then back in, I think, 2017 or, you know, I did a couple of shows for Lincoln Center because Andre Bishop was an old friend. and But then in 2017, a couple of things happened. I agreed to come on to help out with A Bronx Tale, the musical. I had directed Chaz Palminteri's one-man show of A Bronx Tale. Mm-hmm. Now they were turning into a musical mm-hmm. And Bob De Niro was directing it. And they wanted me to come in and work with him on that. And that's what I ended up doing. You work with De Niro. Yeah.
0: And because he had not, had he not directed a, That's right.
1: He had never directed
0: a You were a kind of his
1: coach of sorts a well, partner or partner. We, we, or? We're partner. Yeah. I think we were partners, yeah. you know, and you know, it's impossible to have two people directing at the same time. It's impossible, man. It'd be like having two conductors in front of the symphonic. Right. You know, the, the, the so what happened? Man. I mean, one of them is De Niro. <laughs> yeah, but he's, <laughs> but he's a great guy and a sensible guy. And I had directed him in a movie mm. years earlier in 1995, I think, um, called Marvin's Room. So we knew each other and we had long conversations about how we were going to do this. Mm-hmm. And what it boiled down to, was i was going to run the rehearsal room and show him what i had come up with yeah. and he would respond to it react to it advise along with the writers as well obviously yep. but that was important because i began to feel my muscles i began to feel myself get into shape around the same time around the same time scott rudin with whom I had done a funny thing happened on the way to the forum I know, years earlier. Was, yeah. mm-hmm. was, that, what, was that, that was that Zero Mostel? That was Nathan or? Nathan Lane. Nathan Zero Lane. originally, and then in my production, Nathan, Nathan Lane replaced by I, Whoopi, I, Goldberg. Uh, uh, right. uh, with Whoopi Goldberg. That's right. Whoopi oh, Goldberg. That's right. That's right. No, but that's talk about you know someone who cannot work hard enough. Mm-hmm. Whoopi. When she came in to replace Nathan, she asked me how much I would be present at rehearsals. Mm-hmm. Because often when a cast is replaced, mm-hmm. the director does not put the person in. A stage manager will rehearse mm-hmm. them. And I said, I'll be here as long as you want to work hard. You want to work? I'll be here. to be. And we ended up having a great time. But I'm forgetting what the point was that I was making. So um, you're talking about Scott Rudin? Yes. So Scott Rudin and I had worked together. And uh, one summer before 2017, we got together for dinner and he said... I've got the rights to Hello, Dolly, Do You Want to Direct It? Uh-huh. Now, Sid, let me explain. something. <laughs> <laughs> in 1965, just after I'd fallen in love with musicals because of wonderful town at, at the Hopkins Center, yep. I came to New York with a friend of mine. and We stood in the back of the St. James' and we watched Hello, Dolly. And it was everything that I wanted in Who: Carol Star- Channing was in it. it was Carol, Carol Channing, Channing that's right. Oh. I went back two more times, stood in the same place, and saw it with Pearl Bailey and Ginger Rogers. Wow. And each time, it did to me what I, what had happened to me when I saw mm-hmm. Wonderful Town, mm-hmm. ecstasy. See, yeah. I don't know how to explain it other than <laughs> that you experience a kind of joy that is impossible to quantify or measure. Mm-hmm. And I thought right then and there, I want to be responsible. That's the kind of show I want to mm-hmm. do. Fast forward to 2016 or 17, whenever Scott and I sat down, mm-hmm. he said, do you want to do Hello Dolly. Do I want to do Hello Dolly? More than I can tell you. And it was Scott who uh, got Bette Midler to agree to do it, which took it over the top, you know. And so uh, between Bronx Tale and then Hello Dolly. And then at the same time, I directed a play by Steve Martin called Meteor Shower, which starred Amy Schumer. Amy had never, huh. right. and These it was, are so different. Well, they're very different, aren't Amy they? Amy Schumer. <laughs> but the task is the same. Really? Tell a story. Huh. Tell a good story. Make the audience fall in love with the story. Mm. You know, I've always believed the sound of laughter is the sound of an audience falling in love. You get them laughing and you need to start, you need to give them permission to laugh as early on as possible. Mm. And then that represents an audience's investment in the character well, that's very interesting so it's true i'm in the audience i'm starting to laugh you're falling in love with the character uh, and i
0: want to laugh some more yeah i want to justify that last laugh yeah that's right that's wow. right
1: that's right and it's my job yeah to make sure that the rate of new ideas right. is such that you laugh mm-hmm. and then you laugh again and then just when you think you're going to laugh again you don't but then you laugh a second <laughs> later i play with you in the best way possible, mm. I make sure that the entire audience is looking at the same place mm. at the same time. I don't have cameras. I can't cut away. That's right. So I have to create the illusion of a close up. Mm. If I had Bette Midler down center singing before the parade passes by, I don't want her to move. I want her to sing it right from there so that we as an audience. Basically, zoom in on her, and we yeah. feel as though. And that's just years of trial and error, you know. Mm. My point was, after those three most recent shows, I felt like I was back where I belonged. <laughs> yeah. Right. No kidding. So, but so, how
0: do you do three at the same time? They were
1: consecutive, they were sec- sequential. There was you know. no overlap at all. I mean, no, a, no, not, not really. really. No, yeah. no. One had opened before I started working. Um, yeah. Have you ever done two? Not involved in some in some way with two. well i 'm preparing the music man right now i 'm mm-hmm. preparing the music man to go into rehearsals mid July next year that 's going to start Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster, and i 'm preparing that now, meaning making sure the sets get designed. Our choreographer Warren Carlisle has done a four week choreographic lab mm-hmm. to begin staging mm-hmm. the big numbers, and I started rehearsals today for Mrs. Downfire. The adaptation, the stage adaptation of the wonderful film. So I'll be working. Is that working on it simultaneously? No, you can't be in two places at the same time. But I've begun. Well, they're up, both
0: in your in your head, in your brain. They you're are thinking about both. That's right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So at this early stage for The Music Man, you said, Yes, that's right. Uh, Do people like Hugh Jackman, are they there? Are they involved? No. This is all ahead of time.
1: This is, we get a wonderful actor who fills in for Hugh Ah. in the lab. Sutton Foster was available. So she came by for a week Hmm. and started learning her choreography. Hmm. And then that gets put on hold until the beginning of next year. In the meantime, I will have opened Mrs. Doubtfire in Seattle at the Fifth Avenue Theater in mid-December. Mid-December of yes. uh, 2019. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And depending on how it goes, mm. depending on whether the show goes as well as we all hope it does, yeah, it can theoretically come to Broadway in the spring of next so year. So
0: now I have to ask, is it it's possible that it will do so poorly? I don't even think you wanted this question, but it will do oh, so poorly in Seattle <laughs> that it wouldn't come here? I mean, right. c- wouldn't you be working to
1: fix it? Yeah. Yeah, but here's the thing. It's all like um, there are theaters, there are X number of physical Broadway houses. Yes. They're all spoken for. Huh. The people who makes those decisions are the owners of the theaters. Right. right. So one of the theater owners is holding a theater for Doubtfire unless it doesn't go as well as we would like it to. Right. And then if it doesn't go as well as we would like it to and there's more work that needs to be done... Mm-hmm. Prior to a Broadway opening, mm-hmm. then we'll lose that theater. Yeah, we'll have to yeah. do it a, another a later time. But we. It's not gonna happen. I know yeah. it's not gonna happen. <laughs> but you just said it in a way that yes. made me
0: curious, which means a lot of listeners will be curious, like what well, happens there.
1: What happens is we work as hard as we can yeah. now yeah. with the intention of delivering the best show possible for the audiences in Seattle in December. What I failed to tell you was we did a reading of Doubtfire about three months ago. That meaning I had actors for about 10 days. The actors that will be in... The- some of them, okay. some of them. Okay. They, they learned the music, they learned the script. Mm-hmm. I sat them in chairs with microphones and we put them in front of 400 people. And they read the material. They did a reading of the show. They sat the whole time. And they stood up. No, they sat when they weren't on stage. But they would stand up. They would stand up to act Uh or sing. And then they would sit down. Uh So there was no staging. But there was music. And you could hear the lines. And the audience started to laugh. Uh And they cared. And, you know, when things got difficult for the characters that they had fallen in love with, they cared. Mm. And when it worked out for the characters that they had fallen in love with, Mm. they were moved. Mm. Ecstasy. That's all I'm after, so, you know? Yeah. That's, yeah, all. that's a low bar right there, Jerry, nah. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's, that's everything. It. But that's like only connect, you know? Of course, right. only connect, right. easy. It's not, but it's hard to describe the sound of an audience who has been thrilled. Hmm. It's been the same for all of my shows. The hmm. When the show ends, the roar and right. appreciation is right. though 1,200 people turned around and said, Thank you. Wow. Thank you for that. That's all I'm aiming for.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I, can see how that could be an absolutely overwhelmingly addictive.
1: Yes. Yes, it it is. Right. It is. is. That's why I keep going. Yeah. I can't really quite get enough of it. And Mm -hmm. I feel like probably one of the luckiest guys in the world to really... I mean, today was first day of rehearsals. I was as nervous and excited Mm -hmm. as I've ever been. What I've learned, among other things, is how to approach that first day of rehearsal, mm-hmm. how to make sure that my actors are protected and feel safe. Because I don't care whether you're Bet or Nathan Lane or whether you're just a kid who's in your first Broadway show. Yeah. What you have in common is you're vulnerable in the rehearsal mm-hmm. room. You're exposed. You're exposed differently than when you're actually in front of the 1,200 people. Sure, because you're coming up with stuff. So you might make a silly choice. You might make an inappropriate choice. You might do a line in a way that is like, no, I don't think so. But, you know, as long as you're in an environment where you're not going to be ridiculed for that. Right. Or no one is going to say, is she really going to do it like that? I am devoted to protecting the actors so that they can feel safe enough Right. To surprise that's themselves. Fantastic what you're saying. Because <laughs> in my field
0: yes. there's a term for that. It's, it's called, called psychological safety. That's exactly right? right. You you just you're not afraid to say and do what you need to do. And if make you're in a safe mistake. place. If, yeah. that's right. That's yeah. what it means. Yeah. And you have you know not everything's gonna work, but that's called learning. And it's not called failure, it's called learning.
1: It is. I don't allow anyone into the rehearsals. My room, there are no drop-ins. I Uh, learned that when I asked you about where we would
0: meet. and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's very sweet. I just thought, well, maybe that's convenient for you. And then you said, well, in a very nice way, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Well, that's uh,
1: exactly But Now we know each other a little bit. Right. There's no way you're coming in to watch a (laughs) rehearsal. Because the minute someone comes in, whether it's one of the producer's assistants Mm. or someone's best friend who's just in town for a day, no. As soon as someone comes into that room... It changes the chemistry. Yeah. It changes the physics. Mm-hmm. The actors are now performing, you know. And if something doesn't go well, mm-hmm. it's harder for them to just go. Oh, I won't do that again. Right. And laugh at it. Yeah. So, I just—that's part of my job, you know. And if I err too much on the side of being a little overprotective, mm-hmm. that's because I'm Jewish and I can't help it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so it sounds to me like you're never going to retire. No it's not happening
1: no 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 as long as i can move and get from point a to point b and as long as i can get the joy i get out of reading the script and imagining how people are going to move about and wouldn't it be funny if when this person did this everyone else on stage went ha ha ha, ha mm-hmm. all together mm-hmm. it's too much fun said it's too much fun and it gives me too much mm-hmm. for me to uh But what I really want to do is pass it on. I've got a young assistant now, by the way, who has directed the non-union production of A Bronx Tale on his own. Hmm. Tremendous naches, tremendous pride, you know? And so it's very important to me to pass on to anyone who is interested, young people, anything that I might have gleaned. Do you have people coming, calling you, writing Mm -hmm. you? Oh, Mr. Zacks, yes.
0: can, I, can I assist you? Yeah, and you only could have so many people anyways because it right. takes time and energy. That's right. Um, but that's quite a gift when you do that.
1: Yes, in fact, my, the assistant before the one that I have now was a senior at Dartmouth <laughs> when I went up there to give a talk. And uh, it, when time came for me to find an assistant, I didn't have one, I called him up and he's you know he worked with me for a couple of years and then he went on to direct uh, beautiful the carol king musical really wow yes That's so nice. I, it's very satisfying yeah,
0: yeah. wow anyway. so See. imagine that you can go back in time yes to provide uh, share a little bit of advice but i want the advice to be to yourself Yeah, not to anyone else, and not today. Imagine you can go back to your 21 year old uh, Jerry Zachs, and obviously very early in your career, and you describe what you were, some of what you were up to at that time. What bit of advice would you share to yourself when you were just starting out at 21?
1: I would have tried to make myself understand that what the critics say are not that important. Uh You know, what the uh, the opiners can have a profound effect on you. If you, you know, one of the few businesses where. You read evaluations of your work Mm. in print, you know, I would say only do those things that you fall in love with, you know, Mm. and then work, work as hard as you possibly can work as hard as you can. And don't expect anyone who doesn't share that passion Mm. to encourage you. I so wanted my parents to say, good for you. Good for you to do this, you know, but that was not going to happen, you know. So, yeah, I'm not giving you a very good answer to this, Sid. What advice I would give to myself, you know. Having
0: a bit of a, a thick skin, having some confidence, and maybe the thing that's really underneath it all is you can't judge yourself on the basis of what everyone around you decides. That's to right. tell you you have to know you have to have that center yourself that's right and, and still be learning from that feedback
1: that's right, and expect rejection mm. and don't let it get to you yeah get, let the rejection arm you let I'll show them that's not you're not you know be stronger than the rejection it's easier said than done, but it's critical if you want to pursue yeah. a career in something like the theater right what I see here is you know deep wisdom about
0: things that's not written down yeah um, and that's why it's great that you're, you're not only still in it, but sharing that with another generation. I hope. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry Zachs. Absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks, Sid. Thanks for listening to The Sidcast. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly sidfinkelstein at gmail.com if you like what you heard I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes and please give us a 5 star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.